welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Olivia DeBercier. And I'm Sophia Osborne. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash Beyond Blathers. And of course, make sure to follow us over on TikTok. You can find us at beyond underscore blathers and please give us a follow. This week, Sophia is going to be telling us about the abalone. Yeah, this is a sea creature that I had heard of before, but I really didn't know anything about it. So yeah, I, I'm excited for this episode because it's a really interesting conservation story about a gastropod. So I'm super interested. I don't even know what this thing looks like, really. So I'm excited. Yeah, they're, they're cool. They're a sea snail that is like a delicacy, basically. Well, not, not really like a delicacy. They're supposed to taste really good, but they were basically extremely overharvested in California. Interesting, huh? So let's check in with Blathers and see what he has to say. If you give an abalone to Blathers, he'll say, My feathers! But the abalone is a most deceptive sea snail. What, what? After seeing its dull brown shell from the outside, one would think it quite plain. But take a gander inside and you'll see that the abalone's home is a shimmering beauty to behold. The inner layer of the shell is made of knacker, or mother of pearl, and who what a dazzling iridescent hue. Let this be a lesson. You mustn't judge a sea snail by the outside of its shell. Judge it by the inside of the shell instead. How poetic. Yeah. I, I think that's a fun intro from Blathers. It's kind of funny. It doesn't really actually say much about its biology or that it's so endangered or anything like that. But it's definitely true that they have a really beautiful inside of the shell. And they're also, he didn't say it, but I guess they're really tasty. And these are all actually big problems for them. So <laughs> I feel like it would actually have been better for the abalone if they were more boring inside (laughs) yeah that's a shame it's kind of strange to me though i thought like most most snail shells on the inside were pretty like that and like pearly right i guess that's true i don't know about sea snails but yeah i guess kind of to to make up for blather's lack of talking about biology here we can talk a bit about their sort of basic biology and taxonomy before we get into the conservation of it all So abalone is the common name for a group of marine gastropod mollusks in the family Haliotidae. And there's actually only one genus in that family called Haliotis. So basically we're talking about the genus Haliotis when we talk about abalone. And you may have heard abalone referred to as ear shells or sea ears because of the shape of their shells and the particular whorls that they have. They apparently look ear-like. And in terms of the number of species that are in this genus, it seems to be quite contested and kind of the number that is that are considered valid seems to range from about 30 to 130 different species worldwide. And they really are found worldwide in their distribution, um, except for the Pacific coast of South America, the Atlantic coast of North America, and the Arctic and Antarctic. But mostly they're found in colder waters off New Zealand and Australia, 
South Africa, Japan, and Western North America, which is a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today because, yeah, a, a lot of kind of abalone research and conservation is focused on California. There used to be so, so many abalone in California before they were almost completely wiped out. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. And in California, they have seven species of abalone, the black, green, flat, pink, pinto, red, and white. (laughs) Uh, And so as you can see from their, like, those are the names of the species, which is kind of funny. You can see that it's really based on the colors of their shells. Yeah, I like that. It's simple, easy to remember. Totally. And like, if you look at pictures of them, they really, I feel like they look pretty easy to identify. And these seven species range in distribution along kind of the coast from close into shore where the green abalone can be found in shallow water to the white abalone, which can be as deep as 200 feet. And that's the species we're going to talk about the most today because they're very, very endangered, almost extinct. Wow. And how big are we talking here? For sure. So... For the size of abalone, it can really vary based on species from less than an inch long to a foot long, which is big. Like, imagine a foot long snail. Yeah, (laughs) that's huge. Yeah. That's like a football sized snail. Yeah. And so, and then they have their shells, which can vary from being like highly arched to being quite flat. Like I said, there's the there's the flat abalone and then there's <laughs> ones that are kind of more domed. But yeah, the the shells are like a circular or oval shape and they're domed towards one end. So they're not shaped like, you know, the land snail shells. They're they look more of like kind of more of what you would expect from a marine like a clam or an oyster or something, you know, just kind of like a simple circle or don't or or oval. But yeah, to kind of go further into what they look like, their shells have a row of little respiratory pores on them. And then they also have these little, if you're looking at an, a live abalone, like from the outside, yeah, you'll see their, their circular or oval shells and then the respiratory pores and you'll see these little tentacles sticking out, which we'll talk about a little bit more. But in terms of color, like Blathers said, the the shell usually is a pretty boring color from the outside. It's usually pretty dull. Um, You know, they can be sort of like pink or red or green, but they're also usually kind of covered in, you know, some sea matter (laughs) kind of stuff. Like algae or something. Yeah, that kind of vibe. Um, But like you said, the insides of the shell can be really beautiful and glossy. So that's like the shell and kind of what you would see from the outside. But if you actually like look at the snail itself, I think that they look so interesting because I guess because humans eat them, I thought that they were going to look more like oysters or clams on the inside, like not really look like animals, but they really do look like snails. They have those kind of, you know, they have their big foot with the sort of folds on it like snails do. And then... They even have those eye stalks with noticeable little eyeballs. So yeah, I found them very animal-y. Like I kind of couldn't imagine eating one, but I'm sure once they're cooked, you can't tell, I guess. But I'm looking at photos of them as like a culinary thing right now. And like they kind of look like oysters, but yeah, like you can really see the foot of the snail. Like 
very distinctly. They don't look particularly appetizing to me, but I'm also not like a big shellfish person. <laughs> so yeah, if you look at the like culinary photos, they don't really look that snail-like. But if you look at like alive photos of them, which are kind of hard to find online. They are hard to find. Like I found only a few, but I see the the eyes are really distinct because the eyes are like white. So you can really see them. They, they look like Gary the the snail from <laughs> Spongebob. Yeah. If you look up like abalone snail, you'll probably get a better picture of what they actually look like as like a little creature when they kind of pop out of their shell. But yeah, I mean, I think they're kind of cute. They're in that like space of like, is it cute? Is it gross? <laughs> I I cannot, <laughs> I cannot tell. Yeah, I feel that. But yeah, like I said, if you're looking at a picture of a live abalone, especially where you're kind of like looking at it from above, you'll see these little tentacles sticking out of the side of the shell. And that's called the epipodium, which is a sensory structure that extends off of the foot that has tentacles, which is pretty cool. So they kind of look to me like an interesting mashup of like clam oystery sort of thing with a snail with a little like anemone or squiddy thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree with that assessment. I'm not sure if I would know it was a snail when I first saw it. Mm-hmm, exactly. So what are these things eating? Yeah, so I actually read that they are really reliant on eating kelp, which I love because I love kelp forests. So apparently I saw a quote from a scientist about like something about like you wouldn't have birds without a forest and you can't have like abalone without the kelp forest, which is unfortunate because kelp forests are also facing a lot of conservation issues and are really vulnerable to climate change. Um, And then also they are really kind of being devastated by purple urchins, which their populations have really exploded. So that makes it really hard for abalone to actually find kelp to eat, which compounds on top of all the other conservation issues that they face. So yeah, I think this is like as good a time as any to dive into conservation because I think that that is kind of the most interesting topic when it comes to abalone. So I'm going to be talking a lot about like a couple journalistic articles that I read. And one is an LA Times article by Rosanna Shia that just did a really great job kind of summing up the story of abalone in California. And here's a quote that kind of dives into the the whole issue of overharvesting. So she says, quote, Abalone once were to California what lobster is to Maine and blue crab to Maryland. So plentiful, they stacked one on top of another like colorful paving stones. Californians held abalone bakes, spun abalone folktales, sang abalone love songs. They grew large and hearty and fetched extraordinary prices. One diver once said it was like pulling $100 bills from the seafloor, but we loved them almost to death, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, interestingly, in 2001, the white abalone actually became the first marine invertebrate to be listed as a federal endangered species in the U.S. So it's a very important conservation story. And it's interesting, too, because it's funny that I had never heard of this. I guess if I was Californian, maybe I I would have. But, like, obviously I know about, you know, lobster in Maine or – you know, in Canada, you'd probably be talking about like cod fisheries or salmon fisheries, just in terms of those kind of like, 
iconic species that are so important for these communities and economies. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it sounds as though there was such a culture around them. It does remind me a lot of salmon, actually, in that respect. Mm-hmm. Just the stories that you used to hear about, like, being able to put buckets in the water and just, like, come out with buckets of of fish and everything. And, like, it sounds like that's how it was with abalone. But it, mm-hmm. that can be so deceiving. And it seems like overharvesting is usually what what ends up happening in those kinds of stories. Yeah. So yeah, according to this article, the coast of California used to have the most abalone of anywhere in the world. And in terms of those seven species that we talked about, the white abalone is considered the most valuable, and it has a really beautiful white mother-of-pearl inlay, whereas the red abalone is now the most commonly commercially farmed. So I guess if you're eating abalone nowadays, it would probably be red abalone, unless unless it's like illegal white abalone. Yeah, unless you poached some abalone. <laughs> yeah. Not be ideal. So in the LA Times article, Rosanna tells the story of how, quote, in the early 1900s, Pop Ernest Dolter, a German restaurateur who landed in Monterey, was frustrated that his oysters from San Francisco didn't always arrive fresh. Looking for a local product, he took a red abalone into his kitchen to experiment. He figured out how to tenderize it just right, five wax with a wooden mallet. He ran it through an egg wash, added cracker crumbs, and cooked it up in butter, just like wiener schnitzel. Sweet and salty with the slightest crunch, abalone steaks became a seafood sensation. Many professed their love in song and rhyme, jotting down verses in Pop's guest book, end quote. And then Rosanna included like a little bit of one of these songs which i will i will not sing but i will say oh um, <laughs> i mean i don't know what the like the tune the is. tune is but yeah so so it's oh some like jam and some like ham and some like macaroni but bring to me a pail of gin and a tub of abalone so it sounds fun it's it it's like very a party. fun i'm like i wish i could go back and be in this time because honestly that that description of like the wiener schnitzel abalone like steak oh, that sounds good that sounds really good <laughs> like salty with a bit of crunch i'm like mm, yeah that sounds like french fries and like they can be pretty big right so yeah yeah i would like to to try it it sounds pretty good i i love i do like you know like fried oysters with like like fried breaded oysters that's that's some good mm. good seafood Gosh, I I should have eaten before this episode. <laughs> it seems a little weird to be like, mm, yummy endangered species. Yummy sea snail. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so apparently in California, millions of pounds were harvested by commercial fishermen and diving for abalone became a favorite pastime, both like for commercially and also just for sport, which is interesting. Hmm. And at first, they harvested the abalone close to shore. So that was sort of the the species that, you know, you could find in kind of the, the shallow waters. But as they depleted those populations, they had to go further and further out. And finally, they decimated the white abalone, which lives in the deepest waters. So it wasn't until 1997 that the state finally banned diving for abalone in Southern California. Except, I think I read that, like, Everything except red abalone, which I think you can still harvest if you're, like, above San Francisco. But, yeah, even though they put in these 
strict measures, the species have not recovered. And that's because, you know, these conservation sort of efforts are are challenging, especially because no one really bothered much to study the abalone before they like disappeared. So we don't know like a ton about them, which is I found interesting because when I first sort of started reading about abalone, I was like, this is going to be a packed episode. There's a lot to talk about, like, because this is such an important, I guess, like historical food. But then I actually could find out very little about their biology. So that was interesting. And then like on top of overfishing, there's, of course, climate change to worry about. And I also read about a disease called withering syndrome that paralyzes the abalone's esophagus and then they stop eating and eventually pass away. So they are not having a good time. Yeah, that's that's kind of intense. Like, poor abalone. That's a lot. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate that we knew so little about them before this all happened. Because, yeah, I mean, that's such a big problem in conservation is like, okay, what is our reference condition for like what a healthy population looks like? Mm-hmm. Like if we don't know that, it's so hard to put together a conservation plan and have measures for success. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And like it's it's very common for invertebrates for that to happen. And like, you know, a- animals that just don't get a lot of attention. Yeah. So what recovery efforts are underway? Are they doing captive breeding, that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. So. This LA Times article really focuses on Kristen Aquilino's lab in Bodega Bay, California, where her team went from just 10 white abalone found in the wild, because they're incredibly hard to find, to being able to breed 30,000 abalone per year. And that was actually, that article was a from a couple years ago, and she said in the article that to be able to sustain the population, they would need to be able to breed 100,000 per year. And I don't know if they've gotten to that point yet. But yeah, she has now started releasing her her like captively bred abalone into the wild. But yeah, this, this, this captive breeding process is really precise and involved. Um, here's another quote from that article. Quote, here in the facility run by UC Davis, they get the best food, the cleanest water, The lights are synced to sunrise and sunset in Santa Barbara. More than 80,000 gallons of seawater pump in daily, and an intricate network of pipes and contraptions zaps away bacteria with UV radiation and filters everything down to 5 microns. The water is chilled to exactly 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I wonder... Like, is this them just trying to create ideal conditions so that the animals don't die or more so that they need these conditions or they will die? Like, does that make sense? Like, yeah, I'm not sure exactly why this is necessary, but they did they did talk about how they have to give them like an antibiotic bath to help ward off withering syndrome. And they also get their shells waxed too so (laughs) i think they're just like really really trying to keep them healthy because it's it's a big it's a big risk like losing them (laughs) yeah dr aquilino talked about at the time of the article she had been looking after and breeding these abalone for five years and she was saying like she has been with them longer than her own children (laughs) (laughs) so i really really admire 
her and her lab's commitment to them for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. But then, of course, like, although they have these really precise conditions, they have to actually release the abalone into the wild eventually. And so the article also talked about how the team acclimatizes them to their new habitat in the California waters. So they make these, like, short-term abalone fixed enclosures or safes, which is kind of funny. (laughs) So I'm like, I don't know if it was necessary to like name them because if you look at them, they just look like basically like a rectangular crab trap, you know, with like netting and they lower the abalone down in them. And then they actually have to like dive down and they open them up a crack so that like the abalone can leave when they feel ready to leave, but they're also still protected from predators, which You're is like, hey, you take your time, you do you, we're here to support you. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. It's really cute. And like the article was sort of focusing on so they actually sort of tested this like safe procedure with red abalone at first. And yeah, so like then when it came to actually like opening up the safes and like fully releasing them, they had to dive down, but they only had like a bit of time and they were waiting to see if any of the abalone would actually leave. And some of them left right away and they were so proud of them. And just a really, I, yeah, I love seeing like how much these scientists really care about these species in their breeding programs. Yeah, when you've really done everything, you've waxed their shells, like, you've been there every step of the way. Yeah. That's got to be a big, exciting moment. Totally. They seemed very, yeah, very, very excited. And so that was a couple years ago that that article was from, but actually the timing of this episode is pretty cool because there's also a new study out in the journal Frontiers in Marine Science And it came out like less than a month ago that talks about a new technique for helping these breeding programs to figure out which abalone are ready to spawn because that can be quite an issue with abalone. You know, they they need to kind of figure out like which abalone to to put together (laughs) to get it on. But uh, (laughs) it's not very easy to tell which abalone are actually sort of ready And so basically up until now, scientists have had to visually inspect the abalone to see if their little like gonad bulge is enlarged, which is kind of (laughs) how they figure is their best way to tell if they're ready. And yeah, depending on how enlarged it is, they would score them (laughs) based (laughs) on like how ready they seem to be to reproduce, which is pretty funny, like on a scale of one to five. (laughs) How enlarged are your gonads? Let's yeah. see. What was it? About a six. <laughs> Very ready. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, this kind of visual inspection can be pretty unreliable. And this is funny. It's because the gonad is actually surrounding their stomach. So if they just had a big meal, it could make it seem like their gonad is swollen, oh. but actually their stomach is just full. It just felt relatable in some way. I don't know how. It just felt <laughs> mel- metaphorical. <laughs> And then also sort of visually inspecting them and like, you know, handling them and like peeling them off of the substrate and bringing them out of the tank and everything can be pretty disruptive for the abalone. And it can also, if they were in the mood, it can take them out of the mood. So it just was not the best way to go about it. So what these two scientists, Jackson Gross and Sarah Boles, discovered was that they could hold an ultrasound device up to the feet of the abalone without even taking them out of their tanks. 
and they would get a clear image of what the gonads actually look like and how enlarged they are. And this lets them score the abalone, I guess, more reliably on a scale of one to five and decide which are most likely to spawn. And the interesting thing is that they're still trying to confirm whether gonad size actually corresponds with their reproductive success. So this new technique will help them do that in kind of a more, I guess, like scientifically accurate way. Because it won't just be like, oh, this one was really hungry or or this one was really full. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's less subjective if you've got like a specific measurement device. Yeah. So it's a really new application of the ultrasound technology, but it sounds like it could really help. And to bring it full circle, they're using this technique to help Dr. Aquilino in her white abalone captive breeding program. So that's cool. I guess I got the vibe that like Aquilino's lab is like the lab, like this uh, this white abalone breeding program is pretty special. Yeah, that's so exciting. I love, I am really deeply fascinated by captive breeding and like the successes and failures and analyzing that. I just think it's so cool. Yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of keep an eye on in the future in terms of how successful this will be. I really hope that it will, yeah, that it will succeed because they seem like such a cool species and I I feel, I feel really bad for them. <laughs> yeah, well, they're so cute. They're just like these little snails. They're just doing their best and getting mm-hmm. fished out of the water. It's got to be hard. Yeah. And they're so pretty. Yeah, they are. And, oh, I have to say that I read about this ultrasound technology in an article by Wudan Yan in the New York Times that just came out recently. So, yeah, I also kind of want to give a shout out to all the cool science journalism going on with abalone. Very, very cool. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so great. Thank you so much, Sophia. That was really interesting. And I didn't expect that kind of a story at all out of the abalone. So that's really neat. Yeah. It was like completely 100% new knowledge to me. So thank you. Awesome. I was going to say if you're if you're a Californian listener and you've like eaten abalone or you have like an abalone, I don't know, story <laughs> like your Some grandpa sort of connection to abalone. Yeah. <laughs> your grandpa was like an abalone diver or something. Let us know. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I want to know. Well, thanks everyone so much for listening and of course don't forget to check out our merch store at etsy.com com slash shop slash beyond blathers we should have some updates soon on there so you'll have to follow us on social media to know about those updates yeah definitely follow us on instagram and twitter at beyond blathers and check out our tiktok at beyond underscore blathers olivia is just really killing it over there it's a it's a very fun place to be we're having a good time. Also, tell your friends about us. That's like the number one way you can support our show. And yeah. we would love it forever. So, and shout out to everyone who leaves reviews as well. Plug in it all today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. <laughs>